Keep coming, guys. Good to see you. All right. So today we begin a time called Advent. Who knows what the word Advent means? Anybody know what that word means? Choo-choo train? No, not quite. Close, but not quite. All right. Advent means coming or arrival. Okay. That's what the word Advent means. So Advent is the time leading up to Christmas. And what do we celebrate coming or arriving at Christmas? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus the Savior. Presence too, not quite in the same way. But Jesus, we anticipate Jesus coming. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's even why we do gifts. It's because we're celebrating Jesus coming. And so one of the things we use during Advent is the Advent wreath. It's this green wreath with a number of colored candles in it. And so every week before Christmas, we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus coming and light one of the candles on our Advent wreath. All right, so today, the first candle we're going to light is called the expectation candle. Everyone say expectation candle. Yeah, expectation. So that word expectation means a belief that something will happen. So expectation is a belief that something will happen. And so the people of God believed that a Savior would come because it was predicted throughout the Old Testament. So throughout the Old Testament writings, it was predicted that a Savior would come. And so the people had this expectation. They believed that it would happen. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, God's people were to rejoice, and they were shout for joy, for behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And so God's people were to rejoice because a king was going to come to them. And this king would be righteous. He would act rightly and do right things in God's sight. And he would have salvation. He was coming to save the people from their sin. And so because the Old Testament told of this coming king, this message for him to come, they believed The people were waiting in expectation for him to come. They believed that it was going to happen, that he would come. And so today we're going to light the first candle here. And this is the expectation candle. Everyone say again, expectation candle. Right, and it's the expectation candle because the people expected, they believed that the Savior was going to be coming. They anticipated his arrival. All right. Thanks for coming up. We'll light another candle next week. You can go back and have a seat. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. Good to see you kids. Mason, good answers, buddy. Right on. You must have lost Thomas the train this morning, I bet. We are in the book of Philippians. What we're going to do over the next four Sundays during Advent, <laughs> over there, Luke, focus on four passages. All right, uh, we're going to focus on four passages that speak of peace. That's what I want our focus to be on during Advent. Uh, The peace of God coming through Christ. So we're going to look at the book of Philippians, Isaiah, uh, Luke, and then Ephesians. Today today we're in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9, but we'll focus mainly on 4 to 9. So as Pastor Jeff said, Advent is 
about expecting, awaiting the coming of Christ, and that's the continued season that we're in. We await His second coming. We set our hearts on, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in these kind of Advent passages that speak of Christ coming, they invariably speak of peace. Maybe the most famous will be next week's passage out of Isaiah chapter 9. He is called the Prince of Peace. And so as it was foretold of his coming, he was named the Prince of Peace. Typically, you're the Prince of a Kingdom. His kingdom is one of peace. He's the Prince of a Kingdom over which peace reigns. And then, of course, the angels, the angelic army that sang at the birth of Christ, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is peace. Charles Spurgeon calls peace a heavenly word. We like it. We want it. We desire it. Um, even those who wage war do it in the hopes of peace afterwards. We want peace. You want peace. I asked the kids last night what peace was, and one, one of them said kind of an internal state. It's what goes on inside of us, and that's right. That's what we want. That's ultimately what we want. That's not a bad desire, provided we find it in the right place. So my prayer is from Romans chapter 15 for you all, that the God of all hope would fill you with joy and peace that comes from faith in this Prince of Peace. That's what I want for you, to learn from Christ how to seek his peace with God, with each other, and in this world. We might have that internal settledness because of Christ. All right, Philippians 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of the life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do nothing from, uh, uh, do nothing, oh, I lost my place. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes that we might have peace. Give us understandings that we might keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for there is peace, that we might delight in them. And so God help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is filled with enmity and strife and infighting. And in contrast to that, then, is the church in Philippi. They didn't have this kind of division. Uh, the letter of harsh is... Uh, one of the happiest of Paul's, if you might put it that way. There isn't the kind of harsh correction that's in the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's um, 
much more focused on encouraging them to continue in the peace that they have. And yet, there, there must be some disagreement in this church. In chapter 2, he urges them uh, to do nothing from selfish ambition or consent, but in humility count others more significant than themselves. That's 2-3. And then at the beginning of our passage, you read, there's two women in the church who apparently are at odds with each other. And I, I wanted to bring that out just to say, uh, it is normal in this world, even within the church, to have disagreements, to have lights go off on Christmas trees, to, to have, not have the peace that we desire. And so then, we need to be consistently exhorted to uh, this kind of peace and learn how to seek it. And so in these verses, especially in 4 to 9, the Holy Spirit is teaching us how to live in a church that is mostly in unity and care for each other, how to not lose the peace that we um, should have in Christ. And so I think this letter is a lot like our church in this way. We should give thanks to God for the kind of unity and peace that we have. We mostly have a happy congregation that enjoys each other, and yet there are some who are at odds with each other. We have disagreement. And so we need to be exhorted towards peace and be taught how to do it. And so in these verses then, we have an Advent text. We have a a Christmas text. We are taught about the God of peace who is with us. The God who is with us is the God of peace. So there's Emmanuel. There is Christmas, God coming to be with us. And this God of peace who is with us, verse 9, the God of peace who is with us, reveals to us the purpose for which Christ came. Prior to Genesis 3, prior to the fall, there was only peace. There was harmony between God and Adam and Eve. There was harmony between Adam and Eve. There was harmony between mankind and creation. There was nothing but peace. Imagine that. What a happy thing. What a delightful thing. And then post-Genesis 3, of course, it's exactly the opposite. And so, because of the sin of Adam, because of our sin in Adam, we have enmity with God. Instead of rejoicing in the Lord always, we grumble. Instead of not being anxious or anything, we're filled with anxiety. We've lost the peace that we once had. The peace that we were made for. We have conflict. We have war. We even have a nation that's divided. And if the saying is right, we won't stand because of our division. And so God sent his son, the prince of peace, the God of peace, to put an end to this warfare, to this conflict. And as we read in Romans 5.1, because we've been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. And there is nothing you need more than that. All peace on earth comes only when you experience and gain peace with God through faith in Christ. And so if you don't have faith in Christ, if, if you do not look to him for your salvation, or if you are, like too many are, you say that you know Jesus and you say that there is a God and you say that you trust him in kind of a general 
nebulous sense. You know, you're, you just kind of count yourself like most of America. Yes, there's God, and, and you kind of hope that it'll all work out at the end with him, and you're pretty good, and yes, Jesus is a good guy, and you may even know that he died, but you don't really live it's not really your life. It's more just lip service. You live your life how you live your life. You come to church every once in a while when it's convenient for you. But this isn't your life. If that's you, you do not have peace with God, no matter how much you've deluded yourself that you do. You have enmity with your Creator. He is actually opposed to you because you are opposed to him and his ways. You don't live for his glory, but for your own. You live for your own purposes and not for his. And you will never have peace with him apart from Christ. You will never have peace apart from you swallowing your pride and humbling your pride and coming in real serious contrition to him in the next four weeks, because it's only for those who love him. It's only for those who live for him by faith. That's what I want you to hear. I want you to turn from yourself and turn to Christ. Because the reason that you won't turn to him is because Christ is so humble. You despise humble things. You despise lowly things. And Christ was lowly and humble. He didn't come with glitz and glamour. He wasn't cool. He wouldn't flatter you or pander to you. He lived small. He spoke truth. He ultimately died a terrible death. And if you won't humble yourself, you won't come in humility to him, you will never have this peace. And so turn to him. And then, of course, we live in a tumultuous time. What is God doing in 2020? What is he doing with the virus What is he doing with all the riots, the political turmoil, the election uncertainty? He's humbling us. He's teaching us that there isn't the kind of peace we want in this world by the means of this world. The kind of rest that we want is found only in him. And so he's testing us. He's refining us. He's purifying us. He's teaching you that The peace that you want is only in him. And so we should thank God for it. I mean, you can continue going off, spouting off about masks and wicked rulers and the election process that was unjust and blah, blah, blah. And you can continue to seek peace by surrounding yourself with only those who agree with everything that you think. And speaking vilely of everybody who thinks differently than you. Or you can learn from this time that the kind of peace that you want is found only in living faith in God. And that's really what Christmas is about. It is the Son of God humbling himself by taking on flesh, the creator conceived in his creation, born of a virgin in order to take our pride our filth of our rebellion against God so that we might know peace with God and with each other. And so won't you humble yourself? So what I want to do in, Ephesians, or in Philippians 4 is talk about the very practical 
activities or um, means that this text gives us, this text is very helpful in seeking the peace and experiencing the peace of God that we want. This is one of the things with Bible. It's very practical. It, um, it speaks in a very plain, straightforward, practical way. And, and so to leave you without an excuse. Um, because one of the things that we like to do in our world is we like to make things obscure. So we always have an excuse when we don't get it. Do you know what I mean? We always leave ourselves an out when we're, when we're obscure. Or we talk in very high-minded, very super spiritual ways because we don't actually want to do anything. We want to talk about doing things. We want the appearance of doing things. The Bible makes us very practical, very doable. It gives you very simple, everyday, common things. And this is why I think some people despise the Bible. It's too like every day. It doesn't leave them room to get off the hook because it's like just for some spiritually elite people and the rest of common rabble of humanity like you just will never attain to it so you're just off the hook. We'll just let, you know, the super spiritual pastors deal with these super spiritual realities that don't apply to our everyday working lives. But the Bible's not like that actually. It it's very understandable for you. And what's going to go on in this text is very understandable. It's implementable. Now, you need faith. It won't come easy. It takes some work and some effort. You will have to depend on the grace of God. You'll mess it up and have to confess you're messing it up. But you're not off the hook in this text. It's one of the reasons I picked this text. So that we, I think one of the dangers of the Christmas season is we just kind of live up here in this kind of super spiritual, ethereal realm of Everything's beautiful and bright, and it's, we want to live this. We want this peace, right? We actually want this. Now, in the most kind of general, highest level, the most broadest perspective, peace is in God. I've already said this, but I want to say it again. We're going to get some very practical ways, things that we can do, to get verse 7, this peace of God which surpasses understanding, which guards our hearts and minds in Christ. There's five truths, five activities that we can do. But generally, in the broader sense, peace is found in God. Peace is found in our living relationship of faith in the Father who gave his Son by the Spirit. And so you need fellowship with God. That's where peace is found. I wish I could say this in a way that doesn't sound like, well, there it is again, pastors just saying these general things that all pastors say, and I don't really know what it means, but it sounds good, and so thanks for nothing. But what I mean when I say peace is found only in God is not found in anything else ultimately. It's found in your fellowship with the Lord. And where do you fellowship with the Lord? Well, primarily here with the saints. And so God is here to fellowship with you, to commune with you, to relate to you by his spirit in order to give you this peace. That's why we're here, to commune with God by faith. And we wish we could 
taste and touch and see and hear, but we do actually hear. We experience God here with each other. But this peace that you want isn't going to be found ultimately through your efforts. I think this is one of the reasons it says in verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. What does that mean? What does it mean surpasses all understanding? It means that it's not obtainable by you just gritting it out mainly. It's not obtainable by human means. It's a gift. It's found in God and from God. It's beyond us. It's heavenly. It's from God. So when we talk about these five steps, we're talking about things that we must do by faith. Faith in God that if we see him as good as he is and we're willing to work on these things, that he, being generous and gracious, will supply the peace that we want. And again, don't you want peace? Doesn't verse 7 sound uh, nice? This peace of God which beyond our understanding to guard your hearts and minds. Wouldn't that be nice? So there are five things. Rejoice, reasonableness, prayerfulness, sober-mindedness, and imitation. Let me just walk through those. Rejoicing, reasonableness, prayerfulness, sober-mindedness, imitation. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. This is a strong word, rejoice. It's a feeling of great joy or delight. It's actually a Christmas term. It's a term that comes up a lot around Christmas. It's a festive term. It's a term that brings to mind gathering with people you love with a lot of good food and some red substances that can make you a bit happier and lights and all of it. It's a, it's a happy term. And it says to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is Christ. And so the reason for our rejoicing isn't just trying to be happy people to be happy people. It isn't just kind of screwing on a grin and pretending. It is actually considering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and that bringing the joy. So it's rejoice in the Lord. Of course, the common thing we do as Christians is to say, yes, our joy is in the Lord and not in circumstances. Circumstances change. And so we need to not find joy in the circumstances, but in Christ. And that that is true. But I think sometimes that kind of thing is to like deny reality and just kind of do this spiritual thing again. And what I want to say is what we have to begin to learn is that the circumstances are from the Lord and are always designed by the Lord to help us find more joy in him. And so when we're rejoicing the Lord, we're also learning to rejoice in the circumstances that are then given by the Lord. So did the Lord give us COVID? Absolutely. Why? Well, to teach us to rejoice in him more. Is the Lord sovereign over what's going on in our political realm? Well, absolutely. What for? 
so that you could have more joy in him. And so then you can give thanks in all things, can't you? We can rejoice in him in all things. He says it twice. Rejoice, Lord, always. Again, I say rejoice. Just to strengthen it. So somehow, rejoicing in the Lord is connected to this peace of God. And I, I don't know which one comes first, if we need the peace of God in order to rejoice in God, or as we by faith learn to rejoice in the Lord in all things, that we get more peace in God. But I know they're connected. I know they're connected. But the command is to rejoice in the Lord. So how do you do that? How can you actually rejoice in the Lord? This is one of those things that's really hard to do but simple to understand. Simple to understand in that we have been given these various means of gathering with the saints on Sunday morning, you as a family gathering on a daily basis to open the Bible and read it, maybe sing a song and pray, praying at bedtime, talking of things of the Lord, reading the Bible on your own. And all of those things are aimed at you thinking on the Lord and so finding joy in Him. Another way to say it is, you have to, as we'll see in a moment, take control of your own thoughts and focus them on what the Lord is like. And there's joy in that. It's actually doing the hard work of saying no to letting your mind just wander wherever it wants to go and grabbing hold of it and thinking on Jesus. It's hard work. But you love him, right? And don't you like to think on things that you love or on people that you love? So direct your mind to the Lord and rejoice in him. Second is reasonableness. I find this one just so simply practical and true. Reasonable people often have more peace. Unreasonable people are always at conflict. So if you have a lot of conflict in your life, it's probably because you're kind of a jerk. And you're unreasonable. And you demand a lot of other people. And one of the things you demand of other people is that they're reasonable with you, even as you're consistently unreasonable with them. And so, men, if you're constantly at odds with your wife, it could be because you're a pain. And wives, if you're constantly haranguing your husband and you just find him clamming up a lot, that's what men do. They just clam up when their wife's doing what their wife does. It's because they're sick of it. And they're about to blow. (laughs) And sometimes we lack the courage to say, honey, knock it off. And so reasonable people have peace. And so if you always think yourself right and everybody else wrong, if you always have to have the last word, if you have an insane inability to see shades of gray and it's always black and white, these kind of people rarely have peace. They make rule after rule after rule. They demand everybody meet every expectation, especially the ones that they haven't communicated And you think as an unreasonable person that you going on in that is the way to peace. Because peace comes when you finally get to dominate everybody. When everybody yields to you, then we'll have peace. 
Right? We're like little Hitlers. If everybody would just listen to me, then we'd finally have peace, and you're going to do your darndest to get everybody to listen to you so that you can finally have the peace. And in the immortal words of Newhart, knock it off. <laughs> right? Like, just have faith in God that people can think differently than you. People have different gifts than you. God has created people differently than you. Different abilities and different things they enjoy and different ways of looking at things and let them be. So reasonableness will lead to a lot of peace. And, and here's the thing. How is God towards you? You know that God isn't unreasonable towards you. He's very patient and gentle. He knows your frame. He knows you intimately. He knows your fears. He knows your failures. He knows how you're wired. He knows your personality. He's a perfect father in this way. He knows how to treat each child according to what they're like or what he or she is like. He's super reasonable with us. He's not harsh, not mean, he's not rude, he's not impatient, he's not irritable. So as we learn that God is like that towards us, we can be like that towards others. So first, rejoice. Second, reasonable. Third is prayerful. Verse 6 begins with an antonym or an opposite of peace, anxiety. Do not be anxious about anything. So an anxious person is in turmoil internally. It's the opposite of peace. And the God-given antidote here to this anxiety is prayer. That's what I mean when I say it's very practical. It's very practical. I know the the objection that's maybe rising in your mind already is, but I've tried that. I've prayed about this situation. I've prayed as a mother about my anxiety that I have in my children, and yet I still have the anxiety. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, my favorite passage on prayer is Luke 18, where Jesus tells this parable of this little old poor widow who consistently goes to the unjust, ungodly judge and finally gets justice. And the head of the parable says, and he told them a parable of the effect that they are always to pray and not lose heart. The problem isn't that prayer doesn't work. It's that you're losing heart. And so we are taught to pray. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Your requests. The Father has designed an avenue of peace by you asking him what you want to ask him. Not asking him what you think he wants you to ask him, but making your requests known to him. Not the requests you think he wants you to make, but your requests. This, again, is humility. Proud people try to figure out what other people want to hear and give that to them. It's a form of manipulation. We can't manipulate God. You know what God wants to hear? Your prayers. Your prayers. You praying what you want to pray for. 
Make your requests known to God. And so pray in everything. A hundred little prayers a day. Wake up in the morning. God, thank you for today. Not long prayers, not wordy prayers, not perfect prayers, just a thousand little prayers every day. God, help me to make the eggs well. God, I have a test. Please help me to remember what I studied. God, I have a doctor's appointment. Give me an opportunity to be salt and light in the doctor's office. God, I stubbed my toe and I said a curse word. Please forgive me. Just a hundred little simple prayers like that all day long. And he connects that kind of praying to in the peace of God, which is beyond your ability to understand or attain, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So pray in everything. There's an Advent season goal for you. Pray. Pray more than you've ever prayed. Complain less, pray more. Gripe less, pray more. Argue less, pray more. Wine less, pray more. So, so far, rejoice, be reasonable, be prayerful. And then in verse 8, I'd summarize verse 8 by be sober-minded. A sobriety of mind. It's opposite of drunk. Drunk is losing control. Drunk is you've given yourself over to the control of something else. To be sober is to be self-controlled, to be under the guidance of the Spirit of God. And the mind is the focus here. The very end, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, or as I think the NAS says, dwell on these things. So the focus in verse 8 is for you to take control of what you think about. Because you know that the battle for peace is here, right? It's here. That if you just kind of let your mind go, the result will be pride as you compare yourself to others, anxiety as you fret and worry over what's going on, fear, all of it. Because you've just kind of let your flesh take your mind, take you where you want it, where it wants to go rather than you kind of grabbing hold of yourself and directing your thoughts towards what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about these things. The command is for you to think. Isn't that funny? Isn't that needed in our day, though? Like Nobody thinks today. We just are parents who repeat what we want, what we... we we only take in data in our day that agrees with what we already want and then we just parrot it. We don't actually think. Thoughtfulness is a lost virtue. Critical thinking, engagement. And here the command is just think. <laughs> That's funny. Just think. Think about these things. What might those things be? Did you see the sunrise this morning? Think about that. It's beautiful. You have a child in your home? Think about what the Bible says about how God created that little being. Did you kill a, a deer during this hunt, hunting season? Think, think about that. Think about God's provision 
Think about all that God did to get that deer prepared for you. You, as a young man, see a a beautiful young lady that grabs your attention. Think about that. Think about marriage. Think about love. Think about the joy of it. Or vice versa. Last is imitation. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Imitation. Paul is providing an example, an example of godliness, an example of how to live in a world that is um, at, at odds with the gospel, how to maintain fidelity to God and there to have learned and received and heard and seen and practiced what Paul practiced. And then Paul says the God of peace will be with you. In Titus 2, younger women need older godly women. Younger men throughout Scripture need the example of older godly men. This, again, is a call to humility. Proud people will never be willing to serve as a godly example for other people. They're always too good. They're unwilling to let other people see their weaknesses, sins, and failures. Proud people are. So they can't serve in his example because the kind of example they set is unattainable. It's a lie. And again, proud people won't learn from the example of others, both the good example of others and the poor example because they're too proud. They've got it all figured out. This is especially true for those who are young. You refuse to submit to the elders God has put in your life. I don't mean church elders here. I mean those who are older than you. have Walked the walk of faith longer than you. Because you're too proud. You won't listen. You've got it all figured out. You're too smart for those old fuddy-duddies. And you're so arrogant and haughty in your youth. You won't listen, learn from those who are older. But this is what's needed. It's so incredible that he connects this imitation to the peace of God will be with you or the God of peace will be with you. I, I thought about that. How, how, how is that connected? How is this idea of imitation connected to the God of peace being with you? Well, I think the God of peace typically manifests himself in our lives through others. We can learn how to handle this life in a way that is honoring to God by the example of others. And that brings peace. So the God of peace is with us often through others. We need them. So if there's an application for you as an older, godlier woman, involve yourself with younger, younger women who, want, who can learn from example. Same thing as men. Probably the thing that men need more in this world than anything else is other godly men to learn from. We, we as men don't know how to do friendship much anymore. We keep it very surface. We don't talk about the things of God. We don't do things together as men anymore that are manly. It's mainly because the, the uh, definition of spirituality is mainly feminine in our age and men are re- often repelled by that. So we need men who are men to be godly men and set an example for the younger men. So those are the five things. Rejoice, be reasonable, be prayerful, think, and be a good imitation or imitate.
what I want to close with here is this passage holds out peace. Verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. This text, I think, though it is inspirational, is often very discouraging. What do I mean? I mean, you read verse 7 and you want it. And you actually strive after it. You do some of the work to obtain it, but you don't get it. You don't receive it. You don't obtain this peace. You have something going on in your life that is disturbing you and it's hard and you're anxious and fearful and full of worry. And so you ask God to take it from you. God, I just lay it down. I give it to you. And then five seconds, you're like, ah, I feel good. And then it's gone. And you're right back there. And so you read this text and it's just discouraging to you. Why is that? Well, I think part of it is we just have to remember that we are in an age, in a time before Christ's second coming, where what I've just described to you is life. And instead of being grateful and thankful for the five seconds of peace, we just get discouraged right away. And, and maybe angry at God and blame him. I, I thought you were going to give me peace. Well, can I just say, if God were actually to remove his hand from you and give you over to the turmoil and anxiety, you would be grateful for what peace you have right now. I think part of the problem is we're just, we're ungrateful for what he has given as far as peace. He's given it. It's not what we want. We demand more. And so if we're not grateful for what we already have, and it actually leads to more turmoil. But it's just, we're aliens here. We're at war here. We're at war with ourselves. We're continuing to face temptation. And the kind of peace that we know we'll have in heaven, where there is no wrong anymore, and there is no sin, and there is no more temptation, there's no more warfare, we want that peace here and now, and we just get tastes of it. We just get slivers of it. And so just kind of right expectations. It isn't going to be what we fully want here and now. Our peace is often going to be fleeting and little and not the fullness of it that we want. But we have it. We do have it in some measure. And then I think what Paul is getting at as the reason that our peace is often disturbed is, as I've said throughout, just our pride Prideful people don't rejoice because they always want more. Prideful people aren't reasonable. Prideful people often aren't prayerful because it's just going on their own. Prideful people won't think on things that are excellent because they can't get their minds off what they want. Prideful people won't imitate. So I hope Advent season is very helpful to you because when we think of Christ coming, he came in humility. In Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he is God, did not account equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
if there's one reality that should strike us during Advent Christmas, it's the humility of Christ. Now we might learn from it. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't cool. He wasn't wealthy or connected. He didn't say the right things in the right way. He didn't live to appease his ears. He refused to tell people what they wanted to hear. He wouldn't flatter. And it cost him because he was humble. And so as we confess our pride and seek humility, we need to be reminded that this peace of God is something that comes from God to to us and take care not to get frustrated with God when the peace of God doesn't meet our expectations. We live in a fallen world. He has given you some measure of peace that we ought to be grateful for. And if he were to give you the full peace that you want right now, you know what you'd do? You'd abandon him. You'd get full of yourself. You'd leave off God because you'd think that you did it and that you're sufficient for it. So I think God is so kind to us in this day to give us part of it so we continue to seek him, so we continue to practice these five realities in this, and we might continue to look to him and desire his second coming as much as those before him desired his first. Let's pray. Father, please do humble our pride that we might know peace from you. Praise you that your son came in such humility, though he is God, that he set that aside and served us in his flesh, even to the point of death on a cross. And so God, help us to learn humility from him, that we might come to you and seek peace from your hand, being grateful for what you've already given us, and yet continue to seek you that we might have more of your peace. And so God, please teach us to us. I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.